normally we have a gospel message in the morning service. Uh, that is, we look at uh, the cardinal, the essential truths of Christianity in the morning and its more teaching at night. With it being Christmas Eve, we've got the gospel message this evening in the children's Christmas Eve carol service. And so I want to do more teaching this morning, but there is still gospel. There, there's no dichotomy between teaching and gospel. Gospel is teaching and there is gospel in the teaching, if you understand that. And then tomorrow morning we will uh, hear more of a gospel message, especially when we come to the well-known passage in Matthew chapter 1 concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. But this morning we're going to look at the genealogy. And maybe uh, you uh, don't read the genealogies of the Bible. Uh, this isn't the only genealogy. There's another genealogy of Jesus in Luke's gospel. And there are genealogies in the Old Testament, chronicles being uh, the most well-known. And many of us skip the genealogies uh, because we get bogged down in all the begats. In the authorized version, it's not begot, it's begats. And after so many begats and so many names that are very difficult to pronounce, uh, we just uh, skip those passages and move on uh, to uh, meteor stuff. But this is all God's word. And I'd like us to just take a broad view of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17. And before we look at the detail, just a few points. What do you do when you come across a chapter that's really difficult or really tedious in the Word of God? What do you do? Well, let me give you an illustration. Uh, if you've got to navigate tedious terrain, and we've got a lot of that in the Brecon Beacons, boggy uh, moors, very tedious. How do you navigate uh, without uh, sinking into uh, a slough of despond, <laughs> uh, such uh, a terrain? Well, the first thing you do is you look for landmarks. So rather than get bogged down with the whole picture, you just look for certain things that stand out, and you move towards that landmark, and then from that landmark you move towards the next landmark, and by the end you've navigated a very difficult terrain. So are there any landmarks in this genealogy? Well, look first at the pattern here. There's a summary, isn't there, in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then there's a bookend summary at the start and a bookend summary at the end. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. So you've got a pattern first. A summary at the start, a summary at the end, two bookends. And then in the second summary... You've got three landmarks mentioned, haven't you? The first is David. So you can look at the first section from Abraham to David. 
And then the next landmark is the captivity to Babylon. And then you move from David to the Babylonish captivity. And then the third landmark, of course, is the birth of Jesus. And you navigate from Babylon to the birth of Christ. So look at those landmarks. And then there is another pattern here, isn't there? Between those three landmarks, and in uh, my version here, the New King James, they're divided into three paragraphs. You've got 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to the birth of Christ. So that begins to make it a bit more manageable. It's four, no, three sections with 14 generations in each section. But that's a bit too neat, isn't it? So Matthew is missing out some names. There, if you look at the history in the Old Testament, there are more than the generations mentioned here. But what Matthew, what God wants, because he inspired Matthew by the Spirit to write this, is for us to notice certain patterns in this genealogy. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want to mention three patterns. So when you get a big uh, text like this, which seems very tedious, you look at things that stand out, and we've got three landmarks, which divides it into three sections, and each section has 14 generations mentioned. Not that that covers all the generations, so we need to look for what God, through Matthew, is trying to point us towards. So my first pattern the first kind of uh, anomaly, if you like, is, I've called it the promises of God. Why do I refer to it as that? Well, Matthew doesn't start at the start, does he? Where does he start? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac. He could have gone much further back, couldn't he? To Adam. Now, why isn't he going back to Adam? This is an interesting pattern here, even an anomaly. Luke goes back to Adam. Why doesn't Matthew? Well, Matthew, of course, was writing to Jews. And he's trying to show that Jesus Christ is the promised Jewish Messiah. And Abraham was the father of the nation. So that, that's what he's doing here. And under my first heading, I want to draw your attention to the fact that God made a promise to Abraham. Do you remember back in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham a seed? And through your seed, a lineage, all the generations of the earth shall one day be blessed. And God also promises a land. But it's the seed we're interested in, obviously, when we're looking at a genealogy. Back in Eden, what did God promise our first parents, Adam and Eve? A seed. The seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. It's interesting that Matthew begins with a promise of the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, 
And Matthew ends with the Great Commission. Go into all the nations. It's a very missionary gospel. He's writing to Jewish people, but he wants uh, to take it out to all the earth. How long ago was it that God made his promise to Abraham? It was thousands of years before the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we were remembering decades with Brian. Uh, we're talking about thousands of years when we're thinking of God fulfilling his promise. Uh, the Song of Mary, the Magnificat that we started with, we sung it. Uh, she says, and I'm quoting from a modern translation because it gets the meaning here, God has remembered to be merciful to Abraham just as he promised. God keeps his promises even though it took, uh, was it 4,000 years or so for it to be fulfilled? God keeps to his word. Isn't that encouraging this morning? In a world of uncertainty, in a society where sometimes we don't know who to trust, all this business with fake news, it's confusing, isn't it? But God isn't like that. We have a God that keeps his word. And then there is mention, isn't there? Uh, this is another pattern under this first heading of the promises of God from David to the captivity. God promised David the same thing as he promised Abraham, that his greater son, who was not Solomon, but his greater son would inherit all the earth. David's kingdom would not just be limited to uh, the land of Palestine, but to all the world. And then what happened? Well, it didn't seem to be going according to plan. Solomon started well, but he didn't end well. And after Solomon, the kingdom divided into two, the northern tribes, the kingdom of Judah. A few centuries afterwards, the northern kingdom was taken captivity by the Assyrians and soon followed by Judah being taken captive to Babylon. It seems as if God has lost control. But not at all. Because even when it seems as if the kingdom of God is hanging on a thread, God is still holding on to that thread. God is working out, in the words of David Charles, the mighty plan of his great love. And even taking his people captive did not mean that God had forgotten them. After 70 years, another prophecy, another promise, incidentally, God brought them back. And even from the return of the exiles to the birth of Jesus Christ, we're talking about, immediately before the birth, 400 years of silence. Uh, there's usually a blank page between the two testaments in the Bible. There's not in this one, but there's usually a blank page. That blank page stands for 400 years of nothing. But still, within that, there's a remnant and then, immediately before the birth of Jesus, we have, don't we, Elizabeth and Zachariah and Anna and Simeon, elderly people who are still going on with the Lord. God doesn't forget his people. Aren't you glad this morning, if you're a Christian, 
that you've got a God whom you can trust implicitly. So that's, that's the first point. God keeps his promise. And if you're new to the Christian faith, this is not fake news. The good news isn't fake news. It is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The next pattern I want to mention, the promises of God, the grace of God. You know, the Jews, they were really into their lineages. It was really important for a Jew to be able to trace his lineage, his family tree. There's something like that in Wales, isn't there? Uh, I, I, I don't know uh, if this is true of English speakers in Wales, but definitely with Welsh-speaking Welsh people, who you belong to counts. What's your pedigree like? So when I first started going to evangelical conferences and I had people asking me, who do you belong to? I would have to shake my head. I don't belong to anybody. Well, I do. I belong to Jesus Christ. He's my elder brother. And you're my brothers and sisters through him. But there is a lot about pedigree in Welsh-speaking Welsh culture. And it was the same in Bible times. And maybe you are proud of your pedigree. Uh, there was somebody in the church in Aberystwyth when I was a student there, and he traced his family tree back to Oliver Cromwell on one side and Howell Harris on the other. That's a, a pedigree for you, isn't it? I don't know if you're into family trees. What's the family tree of Jesus like? Did any of you notice some of the names that were read out? When somebody was taking a picture, portrait of Oliver Cromwell, uh, they, they wanted to show him in the best of lights, and Oliver Cromwell disagreed. He said, show me warts and all. And that's what this pedigree is. It's warts and all. Warts and all. Uh, for example, there are ordinary people mentioned here. Why does Matthew want to mention the common people? He talks about kings, yes, but he also talks about very normal people like you and me. And then even when he comes to the kings, half of the kings that are mentioned are not believers. And not only were they unbelievers, they were horrible men, weren't they? So he wants us to see them. He doesn't want us to think that the pedigree of Jesus Christ was impeccable. It was from God the Father's side. But in terms of the human lineage, it wasn't. And what I want to concentrate on here is something that would have been completely radical in Bible times. Women are mentioned. Now, that, that really wasn't the done thing in Bible times. It was a patriarchal society. And the emphasis was on the son, the firstborn son, especially. But here, there are women mentioned. Who are they? Uh, you need to have a look at the Bible if you've got it open before you. Who's the first woman that is mentioned? Can you see Tamar somewhere? Yeah, can you see Tamar? She's mentioned in verse 3. We'll come to her in a minute. Who else is mentioned? Rahab? 
Does she ring any bells? Rahab. And then Ruth, that sounds a bit more promising. And then who else is there? There's Mrs. Uriah. She's not mentioned by name. Her name was Bathsheba. But it's Mrs. Uriah. Uh, where, where is she found? David, uh, verse 7, or the end of verse 6, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's not very complimentary, is it? Now, what Matthew is trying to do here, he's not trying to gloss over the warts. He's trying to highlight some of the dysfunctionality in Jesus's family tree. There were many dysfunctional families in the Old Testament. So these are women that are mentioned, unheard of in ancient times. These are not just women, they're mostly Gentile women. Tamar and Rahab, they were Canaanites, not Jewish women. Ruth wasn't a Jewess, she was a Moabite. And Uriah, to whom Bathsheba was married to, he was a Hittite. These are wonderful words, aren't they? A Hittite. Now, the Jews considered the Gentiles dogs, unclean. And yet, they are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. It doesn't look like a good pedigree, does it? Now, let's home in on some of these women. And just a warning, this is 18. Tamar. She was part of Abraham's family. Judah, uh, Abraham's son, through whose line the Messiah was going to come. Judah was father of Perez, and it's through Perez that the line continues. So why didn't Matthew stop at Perez? Judah begot Perez, Perez begot Hezron. But instead, he's got to mention Zerah by Tamar. Why? Because he wants to highlight some sordid material. This is why it's 18. Zerah's mother was Tamar. A little later... Judah, who was father-in-law to Tamar, had lost his wife. And in a moment of weakness, he was taken in by somebody he thought was a prostitute, but it wasn't. It was his daughter-in-law. Are you shocked that there's incest? In Jesus' family tree? We should be, because that's what Matthew wants us to uh, show. He's including it, he's including it. And then uh, let's go on to Rahab. Uh, Rahab is uh, remembered, isn't she, in Hebrews 11, in the Hall of Fame of the men of faith. Not just the men of faith, but the women of faith. How is she referred to in the Hall of Fame? Rahab, the righteous. Rahab, the harlots. Rahab, the prostitutes. She didn't remain 
a harlot. She was saved by faith. Uh, people were saved by faith in the Old as well as the New Testament. But she is given that label for all posterity in order to highlight the grace of God. Can, can you see what Matthew is doing? Even before he comes to the name Jesus, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. He's bringing grace into the genealogy. Isn't that wonderful? In the words of Tim Keller, the begats are dripping with grace. Give me a begat any day if it's full of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's food for the soul, isn't it? A begat, not a baguette. And then what about David? He was the man after God's own heart. But he fell, didn't he? He fell badly. You remember the account. He'd reached uh, the pinnacle of his career as king, and he was taking some time off when he should have been on the field of battle. And as he was relaxing, he uh, saw this beautiful woman uh, called Bathsheba. And he wanted her. He wanted to lie with her, to sleep with her. And her husband was on the battlefield, Uriah. And as a result of that adulterous meeting, Bathsheba got pregnant. And David is thinking, how can I sort this out? This is going to make me look bad. How can I make it look acceptable? And he has a cunning plan. And the plan is to call Uriah back from the battlefield. So he looks as if he's being a very kind king. And if Uriah comes back from the battlefield, he will sleep with his wife, Bathsheba. And then that would explain, when she gets pregnant and gives birth, why it happened. But Uriah was an honorable man, and he came back from the battlefield, and he would not sleep with his wife. The soldiers were out on the trenches. He would not lie in comfort. So... In the end, David has to force him to do that. And then David sends him back to the battlefield, but makes sure that he's put in the heat of the battle so he gets killed. And then what does David do after Uriah, Bathsheba, his husband, gets killed? Oh, he shows himself to be a really kind king. He takes Bathsheba in as one of his wives. It looks so godly, doesn't it? And loving, but it was wicked. And God saw through it, sent Nathan the prophet to David and said, Thou art the man. And David, thank God, repented and composed one of the most sublime of Psalms, Psalm 51. But Bathsheba isn't mentioned by name here, not as a slight to her, but in order to highlight David's sin. And to highlight where sin abounds. What superabounds? Grace. Don't you love Grace when it looks as if sin is going so fast, grace oh, overtakes sin, always does, always does. Well, what about you? Do, do, do you like your family tree? Are you proud of your pedigree? If you go far enough in your pedigree, you will come to Adam and Eve. <laughs> and they were guilty, weren't they? Do, do, do you know what God said to them after they fell? Dust thou art, and to dust 
thou shalt return. Do you know what your pedigree is, my pedigree? Dust. That's all we are. Dust. But there's a Welsh chorus which says, Diolch bith am gofio llwch a llawr. Thanks be to God for remembering the dust of the earth. Jesus' coming wasn't uh, rolled out, as it were. It wasn't a red carpet that was rolled out. It was a carpet stained by blood, by sin. And the wonder of wonders is this. He came not to call the righteous, not to call those of a good pedigree, but to call sinners like you and me to repentance. And that stain of sin, that blood, he took upon himself. So that's his blood. That's the thread, isn't it? Throughout this genealogy, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, can cleanse us from all sin. Is the grace of God something amazing to you? We will sing tomorrow morning, O come all ye faithful. And that is right, because faithful people were unfaithful, but grace has made them new creatures. But I do like, have you come across the rendition of O come all ye faithful that puts it the other way around to highlight grace? I'll read it out. O come all ye unfaithful. <laughs> is that you this morning? O come, weak and unstable. Come, no, you are not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come, see what your God has done. Christ is born for you. O come, bitter and broken. Come, with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. O come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born for you. He's the lamb who was given. It's better than the original carol because it goes to the cross. <laughs> Slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. He's the lamb who was given. Slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing, Come, he is the offering. Come and see what your God has done. Hallelujah. The grace of Jesus Christ in the genealogy. And then one last pattern uh, before I finish. There is rest here for sinners like you and me. Now, I hope your minds are active because there's some maths here. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to exile, 14 generations from exile to Christ. So three times 14. Let's have the 14. You've got seven. So three times 14 is the same as six times seven. Have I got that right? Yes. We've got former maths teachers here. Six times seven generations. Which would make Jesus then 
the seventh seven. Well, dear me, you say, what's, what's the point in that? Well, hear me out. Seven is a perfect number in the Bible. It shows completeness. On the seventh day, after he created the universe, God rested. And that is why we've got the principle in Scripture, which still stands, of one day in seven being set apart to rest, the fourth commandment. And we as believers, uh, we've made the first day of the week to be that day because we are remembering something even more glorious than God resting from his old creation. It's the beginning of the new creation, but I'm not talking about that now. I had a sabbatical over the summer. Do you know where the word sabbatical comes from? It comes from Leviticus. Because after seven years, now if a sabbatical is after seven years, I'm due quite a few, I think. <laughs> but after seven years, the seventh of seven, the land was to be given rest. Can you see where we're getting at? Do you know what happened in uh, the sabbatical year? The land was restored. And then, I've got to get this right now, the seventh period of seven years, so after you've had seven sabbaticals, which I don't think I will have, because I'll be too old by then. If you have seven years of seven, seven sabbaticals, that makes 49 years. And that year was called the Jubilee. Do you know what happened on the Jubilee year? Not only did the land rest, slaves were freed. Debts were forgiven, and it was looking forward to Jesus Christ being born, the Jubilee. And Jesus gives us rest, doesn't he? When we realize this is grace, I don't have to make myself right with God. I'm never going to be of a good enough pedigree. I'm a sinner. I'm coming as a sinner said a Welsh hymnist. I have no other name. But Jesus is the saviour of sinners. And through his perfect life and atoning death, my debts of sin is written off. And I'm no longer bound. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am freed. And I have rest in him. And there's the jubilee when Jesus visits by his Spirit, the advent of Jesus by his Spirit, they are jubilee periods. When Williams Pantacellin talks about the jubilee being here, he's not talking about some king or queen. He's talking about times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. And the final jubilee is the second advent of Christ, when we shall have rest in heaven. Well, there we go then. Genealogies. Don't skip them. They have something for us. And if you're here this morning and you're still 
trying to make yourself right with God, abandon that and come, come unfaithful to Jesus Christ and he will make you faithful. And for those of us who have experienced his grace, may we never forget that this is a gospel of grace, that Jesus Christ is, in the words of Tim Keller, who wrote a book called The Prodigal God. Tim Keller's died recently, but he was a pastor of a large church in Manhattan. And many people who were socially ostracized uh, were saved in that church. Jesus, in this genealogy, shows that it's those who are gender outsiders, women, those who are racial outsiders, Gentiles, those who are moral outsiders, sinners like you and me, were to come and welcome to him. Uh, Let us now sing about that. And it's another carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And I think the last stanza talks about Jesus coming into our hearts. Uh, Be born in us today. Don't wait till Christmas Day. Be born in me, Lord, today. It's number 176.
now may the grace of Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this Christmas time and forevermore. Amen.